Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this hour. Thank you for your blessings on us this morning. Thank you that you've given us your word. And especially as Lester brings it to us, may you anoint him with your spirit, the power of your spirit. Give us attentive minds to understand and comprehend your word and the truths that are therein. Pray your blessing on him. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Greetings and welcome to each of you this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. My sermon this morning is on the doctrine of non-resistance. And I've kind of given this a subtitle because I, I know I'm not covering nearly all that the Scripture teaches us on this subject, but possibly we'll be covering some more in the future. So I've given it a subtitle of, I will repay, says the Lord. The doctrine of non-resistance, I will repay, says the Lord. A doctrine is simply a teaching from the Scripture, something we believe in. And this doctrine of non-resistance is, in some ways, it seems unique to us as Anabaptists. And I'm, I'm sure there's others who believe in this as well, but however, when, when you do Google searches or any that type of thing on, on non-resistance, Amish and Mennonites and Anabaptists are often mentioned in, in connection with this belief. Uh, we, this is something that, that has been handed down, a teaching that's been handed down um, to us from previous generations. Uh, probably many of you are familiar with the story of, of our ancestors and their firm belief in, in not resisting and, and the, some of the things that suffered because of that and the, the long history that is there. However, we want to look this morning at, at how the Scripture teaches this. We don't embrace it because it's part of our culture, but rather because it is from Scripture, and that needs to be something we continually teach to each generation where this is taught in the Scripture. So Romans chapter 12, I'd like to read 17 to 21. And this is one of the passages in Scripture where this doctrine is very clearly taught, and I'm also going to look then at Matthew chapter 5. That's an, another one where, that we often turn to in, in referring to the doctrine of non-resistance. So Romans 12, 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in, doing, for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And now I will also turn to Matthew chapter 5 and read part of that passage, verses 38 to 48. And this is the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it, has, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So he's referring to, back to what the Old Testament law taught them. 
But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect." This is a very clear teaching from Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount where he, he makes that distinction from what was previously taught in the Old Testament time in the law and what God had given his people, the instructions he had given them to follow. And now he's making the distinction saying, but now this is what I want you to do. This was a radical change from what many of the people this time had heard as they grew up and as they studied the law. He's saying instead of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, instead you're not to resist an evil person, but, but rather um, when they mistreat you, just take it and even be willing to go further when, when they, where he says compel, where they compel you to go one mile, go with him too. He's suggesting that, that if, if authority over us asks us to do something, we'd be more than willing to do it. And then you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, uh, we know all the war stories of the Old Testament, but Jesus here is making that distinction again, that now this is what I want you to do, to rather love your enemy and bless them. There's a lot of difficulty in understanding this doctrine of non-resistance because of, of the stories that the Old Testament gives us. And I realize that for many people, many churches, it's a struggle to to or people use the, go back to the Old Testament and some of the things that happened there, the instructions that were given to justify um, their case of rather than being non-resistant, but rather to, to resist in a physical way. But in, in Romans chapter 12, I'd like to point one thing out to you here that I see that, that helps me to understand this, um, this change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And a little later, I also want to look at several different accounts in the Old Testament, and, and there's many more. We really don't have time to, to look at every one, but many instances where, where people were non-resistant, and, and we see God's blessing and God's protection over them um, because of that. So non-resistance is not necessarily a new idea to the New Testament, but it was practiced in the Old Testament as well in some situations. Romans chapter 12, here in verse 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren. And I remember Joss using this numerous times, and it's probably not original with him, but when the Bible says therefore, we need to look at what it's there for. Why is that word there? So it's pointing us back to something previous. So when he says in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, we need to go back to the chapter or two chapters. But what's the context in which he's saying this? And what did he say in the previous chapters? So he goes on in chapter 12 to then, then um, give us instructions on how we as Christians should live. Some very practical stuff in being um, 
being kind to each other, loving each other, being diligent, uh, helping the poor, and, and on to this, uh, this idea of not repaying evil with evil, but rather um, loving our enemies and leaving the, avenging, the vengeance to God. So why does he use the word therefore? I beseech you therefore, brethren. What is he talking about in the previous chapters? And if you look, he's, he's going back to um, God's plan for Israel and the Gentiles. And how that God used disobedient people to accomplish his plan. He used Israel's, and is using Israel's disobedience to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And we really need to, to take a look at God's overarching plan in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. To, to understand and really be able to, to understand this change that takes place in the Sermon on the Mount where God says, but now I want you not to resist. I want you rather to love your enemies. There was times in the Old Testament where, where God gave clear instructions to his people to annihilate another group of people, to, to go out at, to war, at war against them. Uh, there was also times when God, in his power, miraculously allowed them to overcome their enemy without using force. But here... He's pointing back to the plan. He, he's, Paul here is writing to a Gentile people, and he's explaining to them how that God, you know, Israel had rejected the Messiah. And because of that, the gospel then, then was, came to the Gentiles, and God is using the Gentiles and the salvation that's coming to them as a way of making his chosen people, the Israelites, of making them jealous and of bringing them to salvation. Um, I may just try and, and quickly point out a couple verses here in chapter 11 that refer to that, that so that you, you can, without taking time to go through this, so you can see what I'm saying. Um, chapter 11, verse 11, I think is um, where I want to jump in here. He says, um, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And he's asking this question about Israel. Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? He, he just goes on to say how that you know, they have rejected God and, and he, there's consequences for that, but yet God has not completely given up on them. And there's still a salvation for them, for the Israelites. And in the, the end of chapter 11, then he goes on to just marvel at that wonderful plan that God has. And I just want us to think about that a little because when it's difficult to, to combine the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in this area of, of non-resistance, we need to remember that God has an overarching plan. And he has the right, he, he is a sovereign God, and he has the right to, to do what he wants to with people. Paul says in the last part of chapter 11 here, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it should be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things and to whom be glory forever. So he's just exclaiming about how great and marvelous God's plan is. We really can't understand everything about God and why he does the, the things that he does. 
And then he goes on to say, therefore, because of this, this is how you should live today. So that may help us to understand some of that uh, difference from the Old Testament to the New Testament in why God now asks us to love our enemies. I'd like to, to just share with you the story of Dirk Williams. This is, or Dirk Willems. This is a story that may be familiar, probably is familiar to some of you, maybe new to some of you as well, but it's a story that's often referred to in, in describing what does it mean to be non-resistant. And this is some of where our history as Anabaptists goes to, to men like, like Dirk Willems, who were willing to stand for what they believed. So just as a way of, of, of portraying what it means to be non-resistant, to live out literally what Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount, this story was took place in the year 1569 in a town in Netherlands. Dirk Willems, I'll just read it this way. No story of an Anabaptist martyr has captured the imagination more than the tale of Dirk Willems. Dirk was caught, tried, and convicted as an Anabaptist in those later years of harsh Spanish rule over the Duke of Alva in the Netherlands. So this was when, when there was men and women who were willing to say, no, you as a church, you were wrong in baptizing babies. Baptism is by faith in Jesus Christ. And they were rebaptizing, and that's why they were called Anabaptists. He escaped from a residential palace turned into a prison by letting himself out of a window with a rope made of knotted rags, dropping onto the ice that covered the castle moat. Seeing him escape, a palace guard pursued him as he fled. Dirk crossed the thin ice of a pond safely. His own weight had been reduced by the short prison rations, but the heavier pursuer broke through. Hearing the guards cries for help, Dirk turned back and rescued him. The less than grateful guard then seized Dirk and led him back to captivity. This time the authorities threw him into a more secure prison, a small heavily barred room at the top of a very tall church tower above the bell, where he was probably locked into the wooden leg stocks that remain in place today. Soon he was led out to be burned to death. Here's a man who, who you know, we have to go back and put ourselves into the, the era that he was in or the place where he was at. Today, it's, it's easy for us to look at him as somewhat of a celebrity, maybe. He's, it's um, a picture that is very often used in, in portraying non-resistance is the picture of Dirk reaching down and pulling his pursuer from the icy water. <clears throat> but he was not a celebrity. At that time, he was... Simply a common man like me and you, put into prison because of what he believed. And knowing that death was certain as his punishment, he found a way to escape that prison. But hadn't gone far till he turned back to rescue his captor. <clears throat> Pulled him out of the ice, reached down with his hand and helped him out. Not knowing what this meant for his future. But simply following what he believed was truth from God's word. <clears throat> I'd like to look at what I think are three principles 
that this doctrine of non-resistance is built on. And, and there may well be more, but there's three in particular that I'd like to emphasize this morning that I find in the scripture this, this doctrine of non-resistance is built on. And if we don't believe these three, if we not, don't have a strong conviction about what God teaches in these three areas, we will have a hard time being a non-resistant Christian. And I'm going to be referring a good bit to the Old Testament here as well. I have a, a lot of scriptures to turn to, so I'm going to try and, and be aware of the time and may have to skip over some or just briefly refer to them. But number one is the sanctity of human life. We believe that God created man made in his image. And because of that, there's a special, uh, there's a sanctity of that life. That there's, God views human life differently than animal life. God protects human life. If we go back to Genesis chapter 4, it gives us the account of, of Cain when he killed his brother Abel, the first murder. Uh, I'm going to turn back there so I can quote some of what he says there. You don't necessarily have to follow me through all of these scriptures. But in, in chapter 4, um, so Cain killed his brother and the Lord confronted him about that. He tried to kind of pass the blame on or avoid the, the consequences and the guilt that he was feeling there. But God said to him, So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. This was the consequence of Cain for taking another human life because God valued human life. Man was created in his image. And Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Remember, Cain, it tells us previously, was a a farmer, one who tilled the ground, who grew crops. And here God is basically telling him, the earth is no longer going to yield for you. You're going to be out there, a fugitive, wandering around. um, And and in a sense, the, the curse that God put on Cain here was amplifying the curse that already had been given to Adam and Eve because of their sin. You know, they had to deal with thorns and briars. Cain, it appears like, couldn't even get crops to grow. And that was what he depended on. That was, he was a farmer. That's what he depended on. So I imagine Cain here, just using a little imagination, now going out into the desert. Perhaps this was when all that desert over there was was formed. Cain going out into the desert, having a hard time getting anything to grow there, being just struggling with even surviving, and he was overwhelmed by the punishment that God gave him. So God said to him, surely you have driven me, or Cain said, surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. I think this is interesting what God did here. In a sense, I think he was offering some salvation or grace to Cain. But Cain, Cain did not accept that. 
So the Lord protected him to the extent that other people would not take his life. I see that as a picture of the grace and the salvation that God offers to us. And he also said that whoever tries to kill Cain or if somebody kills Cain, there will be a sevenfold vengeance. And I think somehow people from that time on understood that or knew that. Cain was marked and they understood that there was something uh, dangerous about going after Cain. Here God establishes that there are consequences for taking human life. Human life is valuable. There was consequences for Cain taking his brother's life. There was consequences for other people taking Cain's life. Whenever life is taken, there's consequences. So we need to stand firm in our belief in the sanctity of human life. We see this again in Genesis chapter 9 after Noah's ark. Again, God um, requires a reckoning for the life of a man. He says, after Noah came out of the ark, and God told him to go out and replenish, uh, multiply, replenish the earth. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of every man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of a man. So again, God reminds Noah, or reestablishes this, that there is consequences for taking a human life. In First Peter, I believe it is, God's desire there, it says, it is his desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So now we're looking at the New Testament time. God gave his son as our salvation, and it is his desire that all would be able to come to repentance. <clears throat> God gives grace, and this allows evil, this at times allows evil to continue. God does not always punish people with what they deserve immediately, but he gives grace. His grace also restrains evil according to his knowledge of all things. We see this time and again throughout scripture where God puts things in place that restrain the evil, that keep it from just multiplying faster and faster. I think we see that there in that, that um, account of Cain, where, where God says, you know, there's a greater punishment for the man who kills Cain than there even was um, previously, because he knew that evil would just multiply and multiply. He used Noah, the flood in Noah's time, again, to, to, to um, restrain that evil. So it is by God's grace that the evil man continues to have the opportunity for salvation as well as also God's grace that restrains evil. The second thing, that second principle that we must believe in is that God is the avenger. Like it says here in Romans, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that's why we do not repay. That's why we do not avenge ourselves. God is the avenger. We don't, maybe don't often think about God in this way. We like to think of him as a loving and gracious God, and indeed he is. But he is also a God of vengeance. 
Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Here we see an example of both God's grace and God's vengeance. In Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah is speaking, prophesying, and he's talking about the wickedness of Judah. How that Judah has forsaken the Lord. I'm just going to pull out a few verses here to read. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my people. Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. That's a pretty... Um, doom and gloom picture there of where God's people stand. The country uh, or the, the nation of Judah, they have forsaken the Lord and the Lord is, is weary of dealing with them in verses 14 and 15. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear your hands are full of blood. God is weary of dealing with them, and yet he extends to them some grace in 18 and 19. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. But this, is only for, this grace is only for a time. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, he says. And then verse 20 I'm sorry, I just read 20. Verse 28. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So God is a God of grace and a God of vengeance. Um, Another example is Luke chapter 18. It gives us the parable of the persistent widow. And there it gives us a a story of a widow who came... um, begging for help to the the king. And it says specifically that this king had had no regard for man or for God. He he was an unbeliever. He didn't care what God thought, and he didn't care what anybody else thought. A very self-centered man. However, this widow persisted in begging him for help, and eventually he gave in and helped her. And I think it's just telling us that if, if... A wicked king is willing to do that. Will not God also be willing to help his people? He says there in the beginning of or the end of that that parable, he says, the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? If a wicked king who doesn't care about anybody is willing to help a widow who begs, will not God help his people who he loves? We can be assured that he will. He will avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to him. And he seems to be saying here that the question is not, will God 
avenge us, but rather will he find even faithful people when he returns? Will he find those that are faithful to him? That he will be able to avenge the wrong that has been done to them. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a song that Moses wrote. Again, I don't think we're going to take the time to go there, but um, a very interesting account of how that God provided for his people. Moses goes, goes, I think he gave this um, as the children of Israel were on the, the brink of entering the promised land. He gives them this song, and it reminds them of all the ways that God had provided for them, miraculously, powerfully, in many ways, in their journey through the wilderness. God was always faithful. God provided for them. And then he talks about their sin, how they had worshipped idols and turned away from God. And he comes back to this promise of God avenging his people. If they will obey him, if they will follow him, if they will be faithful, God will avenge his people. We see this also in Revelations, in Revelations chapter 6. There it tells us, as it it portrays to us some of the things that are going to happen, it shows us a picture of the saints there, those who who were killed, the the martyrs, and they're crying out, How long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They know that that time is coming, and they're, they're awaiting and asking God, How much longer, how much longer till you avenge us? We can be assured that God will avenge his people. And that is an important foundation of this belief of non-resistance because we don't need to resist the evil because God will deal with it. We are sometimes, as Anabaptist people, as non-resistant people, referred to as the quiet in the land. And that can be taken different ways, positively or negatively perhaps. We can be quiet because we don't speak for the Lord or we may be referred to as quiet because we don't stir up strife, because we are non-resistant. Um, are we the quiet in the land? Uh, we, we need to trust in God who will avenge us. Being non-resistant, and, and I'd like to focus more on this perhaps in the future sometime, but doesn't mean that we don't resist anything. We call it the the doctrine of non-resistance, and yet Scripture teaches us that there is ways in which we are to resist as well. We can trust in God, who is our avenger, who will deliver us, and it's because of that that we don't need to fight back, because God is fighting for us. So the third point that I believe is very important for us to, to have strong conviction in is that we can trust God. God is trustworthy. We, we all know that. We all, we're taught that from little up, many of us, that we can trust God, trust in God. It, it's a phrase we almost use too lightly. And yet when we think about what that really means, to trust in God completely, without a strong trust in God, we will not stand as non-resistant Christians. And here I'm going to turn to several accounts in the Old Testament where we can see that God's people did trust him and he miraculously delivers them. Sometimes it just, some of these stories are, are so interesting. I, you know, I've heard them before, but to go back and actually look at the details of, of what happened is just amazing. Here we see ways in which God delivered his people without them ever um, needing to fight when they trusted in him. 
And, and the, the, the results of, of that for a nation is always better than if they need to go to war. Yes, there was times when, when God told his people to go fight. And there was times when he wanted them to be non-resistant, to not resist and allow him to be the avenger. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 23. <clears throat> We'll see what the Lord says here to his people as uh, they have just left Egypt not too long before this, I believe. And they know there's a journey ahead of them and they know that there is an enemy that they will need to overcome. There's people possessing this land that has been promised to them. This is what the Lord says to them. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be aware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. These were all the people that they were facing, that were dwelling in that promised land that they were supposed to possess. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. And I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. That looked pretty promising to them to think about that. All those enemies that were going to be conquered and God was going to do it for them. His angel was going to go before them and even use um, insects, hornets to, to drive the enemy away. He says the enemy is going to turn their back and run. <clears throat> Not only that, he's going to do it gradually for them because if he would have driven all those people out in one day, the land would have been left desolate. But in order to provide for his people that they had the physical food and the things that they needed, he was going to drive them out little by little, one small piece of land at a time, and the people could come in and possess that and start farming it, start growing crops and, and providing for their physical needs in that way. Amazing what God was going to do, but the children of Israel did not keep their end of the promise here. He says um, that they are to obey the voice of this angel, and they're not to worship the gods of these people. And it wasn't too long after this till the children of Israel were worshiping the golden calf. They were not obeying. They fell into idolatry. God renewed that covenant with them again later in Exodus chapter 34. But it happened again. They worshipped the, the idols of the people around them. They failed to follow the commands of the Lord. So they had to many times fight these bloody wars that they did because they had disobeyed. 
Because it didn't follow God's instructions here. <clears throat> Another example is Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. I don't think I'm going to take the time to turn there. But the Syrians were surrounding the city of Dothan in order to get Elisha. And you remember this story where his servant, Elisha's servant, was afraid. That we're surrounded, Elisha. Where are we going to go? And Elisha prayed and God revealed to his servant and made it possible that he could see the horses and chariots of God. The army of God surrounding them. And then Elisha prayed again, and the Syrians were blinded. And he actually took them and led them into the city of Samaria. And there he spread out a feast for them. And it says they didn't bother them again after that. So miraculously, God blinded all these people and Elisha the very man who they were pursuing, led them into the city and fed them. Another time, the Syrians surrounded Samaria and the Israelites were starving. There was a, I think it was a time of famine and with their city being surrounded, they were running out of food. Things were becoming very desperate. And God made the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and horses so as they were camping around the city outside, they heard the noise of chariots and horses, and they assumed an enemy was coming after them, and they fled. Not only did they flee, they left everything behind, and the people of the city could go out and find food to eat. They were near to death because of the famine. They were starving. They were able to go out there and take all this food that the army had left behind. Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I'm, I'm going to turn to, to this passage because I want to read some of those verses. Another account of, of how men who trusted in God were delivered. <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter 20. There was a king here named Jehoshaphat. And... I'll start reading in verse 4. I want to read 4 to 13. Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord and from all the cities of Judah that came to seek the Lord. Uh, maybe I should just go back and see what, the, I don't remember exactly what the setting was here. Oh, it was um, the people of Moab and of Ammon and, and some other people had gathered around there to battle against Jehoshaphat and the kingdom of Judah. So they had them surrounded. And Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God, who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and gave it to the descendants of Abraham your friend forever? And they dwell in it, and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. 
O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against the great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before the Lord. So here they are. Yes, they're, they're in a desperate situation. They really don't, maybe don't have another way to turn other than to God. But we see Jehoshaphat leading them, reminding them, uh, leading them to pray out to God and beg for his help. These people that were coming and surrounding them here were the very same people who, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they asked to be able to travel through their land to the promised land without harming them, without taking anything from them. And, and these people, instead of allowing them to do that, treated them harshly and said no, and came with an army and said, no, you can't come through our land. You can't travel through here. So the children of Israel at that point, rather than going to war with them, just simply turned around and went around that land. So in a sense, the children of Israel acted in a non-resistant way. They did not resist this enemy. But here's the same enemy now coming and attacking them. They had not mistreated them, but they were coming to overtake them. So the children of Judah are begging to God for help. And then we see what happened here. Uh, the result of this after they pray to God. In verse um, 17, the Lord speaks to a prophet and he says to them, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. He tells them, God tells them, you won't need to fight. You're supposed to go out, but you won't need to fight. They went out, and it says in verse 21, When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and, and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. So rather than going out to fight, they go out to sing. The whole army of people here singing, praising God. God had told them he would fight for them. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord sent ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. The result of people trusting in God, of following God's promises, of believing in Him when He said He would fight for them. There was a miraculous delivery. Suddenly there was ambushes there, and they fought against each other, and were, their enemy was defeated without them ever using the sword. In 29 and 30, it says, The fear of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. We see God's blessing on them there for following his instructions, for trusting in him to be their avenger. <clears throat> There's many more examples we could look at. David, of course, is, is a familiar one. We know how he related to Saul. And twice when he had the opportunity to take Saul's life, he, he would not, he refused to take Saul's life, even though Saul was pursuing him. Uh, Hezekiah with the Assyrians is another example. They um, threatened and tormented the people there, and they, they mocked them for trusting in God. They questioned their ability, or their God's ability, to even deliver them. And in one night, an angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians. And the people of God did not need to lift the sword again. 
So non-resistance is not foreign to the Old Testament. There's many accounts of people, when they trusted in God, that God did indeed deliver them. The challenge to us is how deep is our trust in God to repay those who do evil against us? Are we willing to give place to wrath, believing that God will take care of us? Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 is clear that we are not to resist the evil, but rather to bless and to do good. We're not currently surrounded by an army like Hezekiah or Jehoshaphat. We're not being pursued like David was by his enemy. We're not being pursued by someone intent to take our lives. Our country is barely 250 years old, and there's, there's many nations in the world who did not survive nearly that long. And we know that every nation on this earth is temporary. It will not last forever. We don't know what our country will face in the coming years and decades and, or centuries. How long God will allow us to enjoy the freedoms that we have, that we have almost taken for granted or expect. We may be challenged, tested in our stand on non-resistance in ways that the generation before us never did. We don't know that. We can begin in small ways to rely upon God and trust in Him to deal with injustice. We all experience those who harm us, do evil against us, treat us unjustly. In those small ways, can we stand as non-resistant, as not returning evil with evil, but rather believing that God values human life, every human life, even our enemies. They have a soul. And that God is the avenger. He is the one who will take vengeance upon our enemies as he sees fit. And we can trust him to deliver us. Let's kneel for prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your written word that is available to us, that we can gather like this and study it, read it. And thank you for your spirit that guides us in our study and, and gives us understanding of your ways. We desire to know more and more of you and to grow in our faith, in our trust in you, and our faith in what your word is teaching. We thank you for the assurance and the hope that you give us. Thank you that you are the one who will repay. You are the avenger. You do deliver your people. You have promised that you will deliver us, and we can put our trust in you. Help us to grow stronger in this conviction, to be non-resistant, to be faithful in living for you, and this way be a testimony to the world around us in all the the turmoil and fighting that is going on. We could be a light and a beacon of hope to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.